0: What does an ancient Greek pantheon worshiper, a Buddhist, and a liberal Christian have in common? Well, when I ask that question, you might think that that's the beginning to a really cheesy joke, but it's not. It's a a serious question. What does an ancient Greek pantheon worshiper and a Buddhist and liberal Christian have in common? Well, they have in common an error in what they believe about God that we're going to talk about today. We're in a series, and going to last a few days, a few weeks, uh, called What Is God Like? And of all the series that we could possibly do, this has got to be one of the most important and one of the most fundamental. Because what you believe God is like is going to impact almost your entire other area of your life and your belief in other areas regarding God and religion. It's going to affect your belief about what the Bible is, going to affect your belief about morality, it's going to affect your belief about the church, it's going to affect your belief about how to relate to people, it's going to affect your belief about eternity, and it could even um, get to the point where you actually affects your eternity for yourself, because if your view of God is so different from what God is actually like, then you're not actually worshiping the real God, you're worshiping something different, and so what is God like? I think the question and the realization that an ancient Greek pantheon worshiper, a Buddhist, and a liberal Christian all have the same air in common demonstrates that even one area of your theology about God being off base can have serious changes to your entire view world worldview of who God is and what religion is about. And so we're going to talk about... A topic that is um, it's a it's a little bit uh, difficult to talk about in terms of the complexity, but we're going to try in a way. It's like easy to get, and then it's not easy to get. And it's the topic of God's immanence and His transcendence. And we'll describe. I'll describe a little bit what those words mean. But eminence and transcendence are essentially the words that all theologians use to describe how God relates to creation and what God does with creation. Um, You know, how closely is he aligned with it or how far away is it? How different is he or how much like creation is he? And it's best to look at these things together because if you get to too far or emphasize too much one aspect, if you emphasize eminence of God too much or emphasize God's transcendence too much, then you end up changing or can end up changing a lot of other doctrines as well. And that, for example, is exactly what happened to classic Christian liberalism in the 1800s. And so it's a very important topic to talk about and one that we're going to talk about now. The first of those is God's imminence. That's the big theological word to mean that God is involved in creation and still involved in creation and is working inside his creation and doing stuff with his creation. And so the Bible obviously is a huge proof that God still does stuff in creation because it's all about what God is doing in creation. When you read the stories, it's all about God moving in his people. But on top of that, we have the four things... That eminence is really about and we're what we're going to do today i'm going to do stuff a little bit differently we're going to go through the bible verses for these two kind of quick and then we're going to talk a little bit more and longer today about the errors that come if you don't nail these two things down correctly because there's a lot that can come if you don't understand these two directly So, we're going to go through these Bible verses really quick for eminence, and then the Bible verses really quick for transcendence, and then we'll really see why it's important when we talk about the errors. So, the first thing we see about God's eminence in creation is that God is present in all of creation all the time. So, somebody get Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24. We got a lot of Bible verses today, so... All right, Tom. And then somebody else get Psalm 139, 7 through 12.
1: I got that one.
0: Okay. And we'll, I'm going to go ahead and call out a few others while, so everybody's going to be looking. We don't have to stop. Um, Colossians 117. Who wants that one? Joe, Colossians 117. Um Job twelve ten. Job twelve ten. Okay. Alright, Job twelve ten. And then I need Job thirty four fourteen through fifteen. That'll be the break. Alright, Don. That'll we'll take a break from calling out verses for now. Alright, Tom. Jeremiah, Jeremiah twenty three, twenty three through twenty four. Alright, you can read it whenever you get there. good. And then Psalm um, 139, 7-12, Teresa.
1: Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you.
0: Yeah. So the first thing about eminence is God is not in, just in creation, but he's everywhere at the same time in creation. The second thing to know about eminence is that all of creation depends upon God not just to exist in the first place, but also to continue to function. So you have, for example, Colossians 1.17, which I think was Joe. Colossians one seventeen. Colossians one seventeen.
1: Yes. And he is before all things, and by him all
0: things exist. By him all things exist. He is before all things. Job twelve ten. I don't remember who that was. Job twelve ten. Every creature, every animal breath is in God's hand. And then Job 34, 14 through 15 says the same thing, but in the negative. It'll, it's going to say that if God were to back away from us, life would die. So who had Job 34, 14 through
1: 15? Don? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust.
0: Yeah. So, the doctrine of eminence teaches the realization that life does not sustain itself merely through a natural process. Life isn't created merely through a natural process, and life isn't sustained merely through a natural process. But in both the creation and the the sustaining of life itself, God has to be actively, not just passively, but actively involved to ensure that life continues. You know, that's real different from what another philosophy out there called, which is naturalism. We'll talk about that in a second. So God is in all creation everywhere, and he has to be there to sustain life. The third thing about eminence is that with those things are true, that God—it's not just about God coming and doing miraculous stuff, but he's actually intimately involved just in the regular, ordinary patterns of life, the things that we would see— as being, you know, just purely natural events, the Bible talks about as not being purely natural events, that God is actually involved in making sure they happen and continue to happen. So let's look at Matthew 5.45. Who wants that one? All right, 5.45. And then we'll, we'll just summarize that one because that's one from Sunday. Um, Psalm 104, 10 through 12. Who wants that one? Psalm 104, 10 through 12. Did you say vent? All right, and then you can get the next one because it's 14 through 17, so it's just the other verses. All right. You said, Teresa. That you may be children of your Father in heaven because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, so there's multiple passages. Well, that's just one. We can't go through all of them. There's multiple passages that show that God actively involved in the sun rising and the rain come. You know, that's that's a pretty bold statement. And not just that's just not a natural process, but God is actually actively causing that to happen every day. Both the rain and the sun to even rise. Matthew six, twenty five through thirty, we did that a couple weeks ago in church, where he said God is actively involved in making sure birds are fed and that flowers bloom. That that's just not a natural process, that God is involved in making sure that happens. And then you have Psalm 104, 10 through twelve, which is about water. Vince. He sendeth the
1: spring into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field while asses quench their thirst. ten and eleven. through
0: 10. ten through twelve.
1: Twelve, I'm sorry. Yeah. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation which sing among the branches.
0: Yeah, so God's the one that waters animals, and God's the one that causes even grass to grow, which is 14 through 17 in that same chapter.
1: He causes the grass to grow for the cattle?
0: Probably could yeah. just end it there. What's that? He <laughs> probably could just end there. It causes the grass to grow, right? You can keep reading, though. Yeah.
1: An herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens the man's heart. Through 17. Yeah. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nests, as for the stork, the fir trees are her house. So,
0: so all these verses describe not just God is present everywhere, And not only does he sustain life, but he's even actively involved in what we would consider to be purely natural events, that God's actually the one that's causing those things to happen in those events. And then finally, to kind of bring it home, this is especially true for us as humans. All the things we just said are especially true for us as human beings. So you have Acts 17, 27 through 28. Who wants that? Y'all are doing a good job <coughs> <vote> volunteering today. Because <laughs> I told you we had a lot. Acts 17, 27 through 28. I'll do it. All right, thank you. Um, 17, give me the verses again. 27 through 28. And then we'll, um, we'll just go down to Romans 13, 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. All right. well, I saw Teresa's in the back first. Really. <laughs> Trust me, you'll get your chance. All right, go ahead, Teresa. Over here. The
1: 27 and 28? Yes. So they that should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own poets have said, For we also, for we are also his offspring.
0: Yeah, so Paul speaking to the Athenians says even us as humans, have our being and our sustenance through God. Uh, and that even goes down not just to individuals, but God even orders and is involved in human organizations and institutions and um, has his hand in those things, like Romans 13, <laughs> one through 7 says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for
1: there is no authority Want to be free from fear of the one in authority, then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, angels of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect.
0: If honor, then honor. Yeah. So God's eminence includes not just keeping us alive, but he's involved in organizing human institutions and not just the church. He's talking about government, and he's calling government God's servant. He's saying stuff like God ordained and to chose that government to do stuff. And that's one reason we obey the government. And so the doctrine of, God, of God's eminence involves, he's involved in creation. He's a part of creation, not in terms of like involved in it. Give, give me one second. Um, he's in all of it. He sustains life. He creates life. He orders even the natural things. It's not just the miraculous things. And it's especially true for us as humans. He's involved in our lives as human beings, not just to keep us alive physically, but to direct us and guide us in what we're doing in all areas of life. He's imminent in the world. So, you, you had a question, Jim?
1: Uh, what, he allows sin,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but he's not imminent in sin. Mm-hmm. He doesn't yeah. cause sin. He
0: yeah. yeah. just allows it. Yeah, there's a difference between allowing and causing sin in the world. You know, about God being involved in the world doesn't mean that he directly causes evil to happen, but he does allow it to happen. Yeah. And we can blame
1: you for the devil, when we've got
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give you an example, and I'll, this is later. I'll go ahead and show you since you brought that topic up. The um, One of the ways that the eminence of God has been misused poorly and messed people up has been this very topic of not just evil, but evil caused by governments, governmental institutions and agencies. There was a time in Europe where they, where people felt like if anything that happened in the government happened, then God didn't just allow it, that he was approving of it, that it was God's approving choice, that that was what the government who the government was and what they were doing. And um, and so what happened was there was a guy named Carl Barth who lived during World War I and World War II. And what he saw was in World I in Germany, he was a German, World War I, he saw Christians in Germany watch what the Germans were doing in World I, and they were going basically, hey, if the government's doing this, it must be God's will, and this must be approved by God because he's involved in the government. And it was horrible things. And then... It, if that wasn't worse, they did it again in World War II. If you follow, if you, the history of Christianity in Germany during World War II is fascinating because it basically, the church split over some that thought that the German Nazis were doing God's will and those that thought that they weren't, that they were, you know, satanic stuff. And um, of course, the Nazis backed the churches that were backing them and martyred the Christians that said, what you're doing is wrong. And so you have famous people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who were guys that stood up against the Nazis and ended up getting killed for it. But Bart was watching this and he realized basically that they were having too big of a view of God's imminence. That God being involved in human activity doesn't mean that he's approving of everything that's happening. He just is allowing or using it in some way. Does is that, that make true sense? in
1: nature also? Yeah, I mean... I mean, God allows a loud, uh, hurricane or
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's true. Yeah. Yeah, if you ever wanna see the of a, a story of what it looks like when Christianity um gets too closely aligned with a political group, read the story of Christianity in Germany during World War Two. And you'll, you'll be afraid of aligning yourself or aligning your Christian theology too closely to a, to a political group when you see what happened in that time. It's scary what, what some of the Christians did over there. So that's imminence. Tr- Transcendence, then, is what stops us from going that far. We have to remember to keep these in balance, that God is eminent, but he's also transcendent. Transcendent means that even though God is involved in creation he is not equal to us and he is not equal to creation that god is separate from creation and he's way superior than creation and so we have to remember even though god is is involved with us he is so much more superior than us and he is not creating like one of us he's infinite instead of finite he's eternal instead of being mortal and so a lot of these things we talked about last week when we talked about how god is ultimately incomprehensible because he's so huge and he's so magnificent if you were here last week a lot of those verses can apply here too i mean it just talks about how much bigger god is than we can really fathom um and so you have other things like isaiah 6 1 through 3 which is the classic story and i want to make sure we have time for some of these uh these incorrect views. But Matthew 6, 1 through 3 is Isaiah's call as a prophet where he goes to the temple and the temple is full of smoke and he sees angels everywhere. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, that is a picture of God's transcendence. He's so much bigger than we are. He's not not just another person sitting on a throne. He's huge. And Isaiah reacts appropriately like, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. When I realize how big God is, how holy God is, I realize how much of a sinner I am. Uh, another example, and we can read this one, is Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, and it talks about God's transcendence and eminence. So, somebody get Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, just so we have one verse for this, because I was skipping the other. Who wants that? Isaiah 57 15. fifty-seven
1: fifteen.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right, Vince.
1: For thus saith the High and Lofty One that inhabiteth eternity. Whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrived and a humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrived.
0: Yeah. So God talks about how like high and lofty He is. You know, He's not equal to creation, even though He's involved in creation. And so there's been some interesting discussion about what. God's transcendence, how can can we describe it or think about it? And I think for us today, with the way we have technology and the science we have with with physics and that kind of stuff, the easiest way we can think about this is actually the idea of um, multiple dimensions. You know, you have a two-dimensional object is like a square, and a three-dimensional object is a cube. So... A cube is if – if there was a world where there was a, where it was only flat people, only people like on a piece of paper, you can move a cube around that piece of paper. And in theory, if the people were alive on the paper, they could interact with that cube. But there's more to the cube than just the part that's touching the paper. I mean there's, a, there's an aspect of it that's sticking out that nobody else has. It's three-dimensional where everybody else is two-dimensional. Okay, Physic- phys- phys- <laughs> physicists, this is where I said it starts getting complicated. I told y'all it gets complicated. Physicists have this found out through mathematics, and that this, this is where it goes beyond me, what well, they think there could be at least 10 different dimensions or more in existence. Because mathematically, it works out. Now, obviously, we only see three dimensions, because, you know, uh, height, width, depth. We live in a three-dimensional world. But science says there could be creatures that live in dimensions that are more than what we have. And if they do, then we can't see them or interact with them. Now, that's not a good way of picturing God because the Bible doesn't describe God as being an interdimensional being. It describes God as being completely other from creation. But we can get a sense of understanding of, oh my goodness, there could be more out there, and there's stuff that could be bigger than us than we realize, at least with the mathematics. And so, C.S. Lewis, to me, put it the best way when it comes to transcendence. He said, when, if there's aspects about God that are hard to understand and hard to describe, that's actually proof that what we're talking about is the real God. Because if it was something, if you were to create a religion with a man-made God, you would never put anything in there that would be hard to understand or grasp. Your God would be something that would be easy for people to believe. So if you have something like God's transcendence that you're going, I have no idea what he's talking about when he's saying a two-dimensional paper with a cube running around it. applying that to God and you say this is tough to get, that's actually proof that what we're talking about is real because nobody in their right mind would make that stuff up it just has to be our feeble attempts as humans to describe what's really out there it's our feeble attempts as finite creatures to describe a being that's infinite and uncreated who's not like us um He's not like us in quantity. He's, he's different from us in quality. He's qualitatively different from us, not just quantitatively different from us. And so we have to keep the transcendence and eminence in mind And the, when we talk about both of them, or we can get messed up. Now, errors. Let me, add, let me open up the, the floor first for questions about all this before we talk about errors that people can go into anybody got any questions hopefully your brain's not hurt too much What you were
1: proposing. don't know what to ask <laughs> <laughs> what you're proposing is theory
0: I'm, using, I'm saying that the, the, the theory of multiple dimensions serves as a good model of what God could be like yeah. but I wouldn't equate God as an interdimensional being no. he's outside of creation yeah but it creates a model for us well, how we can think about it in a way that people previously to uh, our generations could never have thought about. God.
1: I was in a weekend retreat one time that the, one of the counselors explained that we had a study on transcendence. Yeah. And he explained the, we have our five senses of smell, sight, touch, taste. Yeah hearing. Yeah, thank you. And each of those, everyone can relate. There's hundreds of tastes that you know. There's thousands of hues and colors that you see. The same with smell and feelings and touch. God has given us all of those but there are so many more of every category that God has that he's not revealed to us yet, that he's got, that we don't. In thought, in touch, in smell, mm-hmm. and taste, every one of those senses is multiplied thousands of times over. And what we have now is amazing. How much more amazing is yeah. Our heaven
0: will go to Yeah. That's and it's not only and it's that and God has senses we don't have. And that's He has you we could think of him as having more than five that's, senses. five. No. Uh,
1: you could think of those things as
0: infinite.
1: Mm-hmm. Well he of has an infinite. Color, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's right. So here's some errors. Um one of the simple ones in terms of transcendence is we can't think of God as being physically located in a spot. And so this comes up because the Bible a lot of times <laughs> talks about God being high. I mean, we read verses that talk about God being up. You know, we talk about heaven and heaven being in the sky. But in reality, these, were, these are kind of like descriptions of things, but they're not literal um, they shouldn't be taken literally. They should be taken figuratively. God is not literally above us. There's not like there's a, space, a piece of property floating around in space called heaven. That's not the way it works. And so the, those descriptions are ways of, I mean, when you think of somebody who's great, you think of looking up to them. When you think of worship, I mean, even now when I worship, I'm naturally drawn to want to look up to things. Um, of course and Jesus went up into the heavens and that kind of stuff but don't, and, and it, I've seen people that really think that heavens like if we got in a spaceship and flew into space we would run into heaven at some point point. and that's not how it works God's not literally above us like that he's everywhere as a spiritual being and we're talking about a place that is different and separate from our creation when we talk about heaven and stuff does that make sense? That's true. I'll only bring that up first because I mean I was reading a theology textbook that I bought from Lifeway that actually said heaven was physically located somewhere in space. So I'm not talking about some crazy thing that you can find out there. <coughs> this is a it was a it's a popular, well-known theology textbook taught in many seminaries. But a guy said this. Um in a conservative seminaries, not weird ones. Um, So we can't think of God like that. The second thing, the air we have is the, uh, we could have the air of naturalism or materialism, which says that there's nothing that exists outside of the physical world. Obviously, as Christians, we have to completely renounce anything like that. And unfortunately, that's, that's the philosophy that a lot of scientists base their research on. Which is sad, because it's, it's a philosophy, it's not a provable um, fact. You can never prove that there's nothing out there but the physical world. Because by definition, the supernatural is non-physical, so you can't prove it by physical evidence.
1: In, uh, uh, in other words, really, uh, in the Bible where it says when Jesus comes back to Armageddon and for a thousand years... Uh, this earth will burn, God going to earth. You, Lord, and God's gonna make. You
0: they've already planned it out where it's at. Yeah, that, and that's that's a little different because that's the that's the new earth, and that, and that's separate. That's different from heaven. So the new earth is gonna be a material place, like our earth is now. That's why it's called new earth, as opposed to heaven, which is not a material place in the way we think of it. <coughs> All right, so materialism, naturalism, that, that seems pretty obvious. Like we've got to denounce that, that there's, there, it's impossible for anything supernatural to exist. What we're more likely to see among Christians is this idea called deism. And deism is the idea that even though God exists, he really doesn't do that much. Deists say that God is more like a giant clock. Creator who kind of wound the universe up at the beginning set it free and for really the most part he doesn't touch it maybe he'll break in every now and then to do miracles but other than that he stays out of it that's called deism and that's that's emphasizing the transcendence of god too far that's not the way the bible describes god working in creation they don't describe him as being a hands-off type of god it describes them as being very involved down to the minute details of even the natural processes. And so we have to recognize when we see um, the world and when we think of the world that everything is involved because of God's power and it's not just natural processes doing it even if God's the one that started the natural process in the first place. And then, um, I'll do classical liberalism last. Dualism... <laughs> Which is the idea that God exists forever and also evil existed forever. And that God and evil are always in opposite forces and are battling each other. And, you know, sometimes they think God will eventually win over evil, and sometimes they don't. But evil is not an eternal force, God is the only thing that has existed forever. God created Satan, there was no evil before Satan rebelled. So the only, the only eternal force is God, and evil is not equal to God. There's not a, it's not like when we talk about good and evil battling and, and what God is doing, it's not like God is struggling to defeat Satan. I mean, we've got to get that kind of idea of our head. Satan's finite. He's finite, yeah. He's a created being like we are. He can't be everywhere at once forever, for example, like God can. So you, so you see this in stuff like Star Wars, where you have the light side of the forest and the dark side of the forest. And in Star Wars, they always have to be in balance. You talk about, you know, feng shui. Have <coughs> you ever seen the little circle with the black and the white sides, little feng shui circle? That's the same thing. The balance between evil and good, that's baloney. Evil is not equal to God, nor is it eternal nor can it even come close to being as powerful as God. And then the last one I want to talk about before I open up for a couple minutes of questions is called classical liberalism. It's the thing that arose in like the 1700s and 1800s. It's still around today in some churches. And this is the belief that God, it emphasizes the imminence of God, where God is so involved, he's so a part of creation that he really almost loses some of his power that we get from the transcendence. That God is so completely a part of every human act that almost everything becomes a miraculous approved event by God. And so since everything is a part of God's work and God is not separate from creation then every book is approved by God in some way. The only difference between each book is at how quantitatively it speaks truth, not how qualitatively it's different. And so the Bible, this is where you start getting, this is where it starts getting bad. If God is intimately involved in everything and approves everything, then the Bible is not the only book that has God speaking to us. Because other books can also have God speaking to you since God is involved in every book that's written. So they were like, okay, the Bible might have more of what God is saying and wants us to know, but you can also find God's truthful voice in the Quran. You can also find God's truthful voice in the Book of Mormon. You can find God's truthful voice in Sports Illustrated, <laughs> maybe a little less, but it's all kind of the same. It's just one degree. So when you, when you get that, step one, God is involved in everything, so that everything's miraculous. Step two, the Bible is no different than any other book, except it might have more of God than other books do. <coughs> then you begin to question what the Bible actually says, and you begin to read and read other books, wondering, okay, is, is that book right instead of the Bible? And that's what happened to Christianity in America in the 1800s and 1900s. That's what Southern Baptists fought against in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s. Even if you were part of the Southern Baptist Church, you might not have realized it, but there was a huge fight in Southern Baptist denominational life over whether or not they were going to accept that in the Southern Baptist Convention or not. If they were going to accept if the Bible was the only book of God or if there was other books you could go to for truthful information, that even if it rejected the Bible, you know, you could you could kind of say, I'm going to take this book over the Bible. And um, in the 1980s? 1980s, it ended in 2000, officially, with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is our statement that was when the battle technically ended. Because in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, they explicitly put in there that the Bible is God's authoritative and inerrant word. And that was the first Baptist Faith and Message to actually include that phrase in it. And when they did that, that ended in conversation about whether you could accept other books as being as authoritative as the Bible in Southern Baptist life. And so... We're not talking about, you know, like I said, something that's in another country or something out. You could probably drive into Rango City and find churches that say that. A lot of churches that believe that. And it's because they make the same problem that the Greek pantheon did, the same problem that the Buddhists did do. That is that God becomes too much like us. He's too much like us. And he's not like us. Praise the Lord, he's not like us. And so, we have, that's why we have to keep these, these two doctrines in mind, hold them in tension. Any questions about that? You talked about the two extremes. Mm-hmm. One is
1: God's involved in everything, and the other is that he just set it up and let it go. Yeah.
0: So yeah. we're somewhere in between. Yeah, basically.
1: That's where faith comes in. <clears throat> we just have to have faith that we may not understand all of it, but mm-hmm. that God will be there.
0: Yeah. And there's a, when you talk about God, there's, a, there's several things. And the next two weeks will be a little easier. But when we get to the last week and we talk about the Trinity, there's a lot of times we talk about God. Like with eminence and like transcendence. Like with can be knowable or not like With the Trinity, that you really have to sit there and go, I've just got to accept this by faith, you know, because He's not like me, and I have just to accept the fact that He's not like I am. God
1: did a pretty good job of answering the question when Moses asked him, Who shall I say, sent me? Yeah, and God said, I am. We're not. Yeah. Hey,
0: hey, thank, thank God. Yeah. One of the points, and I'll conclude on this. Um, yeah, well, I should probably conclude on that. Um, one of the points that one of the things I was reading made is that this, I, this, what we're talking about today, should affect our worship, because on one hand, we ought to worship God as being the God who's the good good father like Chris Tallman sings about, who's always there for us and he's caring for us and he loves us. But we also need to make sure we're praising God for his transcendence. You know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty kind of thing. And that should affect our worship. That we can't you know, even though it's okay to do one song or the other at times, we can't fall into only listening to the one songs that are only about how much God loves us. And forget the songs that are also about how Great God is. How great is our God. Sing to the Lord. How great is our God. We can't forget songs like that too. And the most awesome thing is we see this doctrine most clearly in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the perfect example of God being like us and also not like us. Philippians 2, we'll end on this, says, Have this attitude in yourself who is also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the fort of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him above and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful passage to, just, to see how God's eminence and his transcendence collide in the person of Christ. Who is God, who has come literally to earth. We say God is in creation. God is, was literally a man in creation in Christ but who also one day is going to be exalted above all the other creatures. And everybody, whether they believe it or not, is going to have to one day admit Jesus is Lord. They're either going to admit it as they walk into his kingdom, or they're going to admit it as they're walking out of his kingdom to hell. But everybody's going to one day admit that he's Lord. And he's the perfect image of what it means for God to be imminent and transcendent in our lives. Any other comments or questions before I pray?
1: Liberalism. Mm-hmm. Where was this generated? Only in the
0: Baptist church? Or was it other Oh, it was everywhere. I would say every western country. <coughs> it was in West, like Europe and America, western civilizations.
1: Who were the people that generated this in the beginning?
0: Um, there was um, a guy named Kiergaard. I think is, that was his name. Um, kind of came up with no Schleiermacher. It all started with the Germans. Uh, his name was Schleiermacher, and he he began to take the ideas that we would consider to be postmodern, like there's no real truth; truth is subjective to every person. He began applying those to the Bible and coming up with ideas and really questioning. <laughs> if what the Bible says about God is absolutely true or just kind of true. And it kind of snowballed from there. His name was uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, um, called the Father of Modern Liberalism. And he lived in the 1700s, and it snowballed from there in the 1800s and the 1900s. And um, it's not—I think it is on the downhill slide right now because— it has a very positive view of human nature. It it views humans since God is involved in everything, then humans are very seen as very positive instead of sinful. And Great Depression, World War One, War Two, Vietnam, War in Iraq, War in Afghanistan, Russia, I mean it's really hard to say that humans by nature are good people after seeing what's been happening over the last hundred years. And so thankfully it seems like the the Excitement about that idea is starting to get slowed down a little bit. So, did Jesus lose his
1: humanity when he was resurrected? No. Stayed with him? Mm hmm. Yep. The books that
0: they were referring to, are you talking about the Quran or just uh, is there any book? Any book. Any book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so denial of supernatural events is part of liberalism. Yeah, liberal, classic liberalism. All right, let's pray and close out. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to be here today. And Lord, we're real thankful for the fact of how you relate to us. Lord, we are so thankful that you're imminent among us, that God, that we can talk to, that we can pray with you. Pray to you, God, that we can experience a relationship with you, but God, we're also thankful for your transcendence, that you are powerful, and that you are not like us, and Lord, we're thankful for how you demonstrated that for Jesus, and how he died on the cross, that you yourself died on the cross for our sins, and I pray that we would be people then who, as we walk about, that we would hold these two truths in the right order. Help us to balance them correctly, and, and to see the world in, in the way that's truthful and biblical, Lord, and Um, that we may be people that rightly order our lives according to who you are and what Scripture says. And we thank you for all that you've done for us, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.